So recently, uh, I was talking to a, a friend of mine about Christianity. He isn't a Christian. He's uh, wrestling with some of the claims of Christianity. He's really intellectual, very smart, uh, really loves spending time with this guy. And so we've been getting coffee together and talking and processing some of what Jesus said and the claims that he made. And it it was really interesting because early on in our conversation, uh, some of the primary objections that he had to Christianity revolved around things like the existence of God or the, the concept of hell, or, uh, you know, science and the Bible and its compatibility, and all of these kind of more intellectual objections that he had. But as we dug in together and as we processed, he and I both started to realize that really there is a bigger objection at play. There is a, a bigger thing going on than just these kind of intellectual objections. At the core of his soul, what he was feeling, what was really going on, is that, yeah, God is a God of love, And yes, God can love a lot of people. He loves a lot of people. But I'm I'm the type of guy that could never truly be loved by God. There are things that I've done, this is my friend processing, there are things that I've done, there's shame in my heart. Like if if I could be truly unzipped to, to be who I really am down beneath my core, God could never, ever, ever want anything to do with me. He might learn over time to put up with me if I clean up my act and if I try really hard, but he could never truly want to drift close to me and be my friend and to love me. He, he just wouldn't. So his big objection really was that Christianity is not for me. It's for a lot of people that have the ability to clean up their life and get a hold of their addiction, but Christianity is not for me because truthfully God could never love someone like me. Now, I wish that my friend's objection, that, that feeling of, of being too far gone, I wish that was a rare thing in Oklahoma. But the reality is his story's uh, not an isolated anomaly. It's actually really common for people in Oklahoma that have interacted with church or have been around other Christians to get this feeling that Christianity's for a certain type of person, but it's not for, for those of us that are really busted up. It's not for the, the, the addicted. It's not for those that can't seem to get their life in order. It's for other people. This is a really, really common thing. And so the question I want to ask, just one very simple question today, is uh, what are the types of people that God loves? What are the types of people that God draws close to? What are the types of people that he wants to be around? It's an important question. Who who are the types of people that Jesus would actually want to pursue? And I think Luke 19 is going to help us answer that question by giving a story from the life of Jesus. So if you're with me, Luke 19, we're going to pick it up in chapter 19, verse 1. Just introduce you to this character named Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Verse 2. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree for he was about to pass that way. I'll just pause right there. Now, if you grew up in church, if you didn't, that's totally fine. But if you grew up in church, then you know a little bit about this guy, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up, okay, I'll stop. I know the whole song, all right? I can keep going. Um, But that's what you know about that story. And here's what's so bizarre. That actually has nothing to do with the real story, right? So if that's the kind of the facts that you have going into the story, I think you're gonna be helped today because there's so much more to the story than this dude was short, 
right? That's not really the point. Uh, who is Zacchaeus? Well, Luke tells us three things about Zacchaeus that are really interesting. Uh, he tells us about his occupation. He tells about his financial status and his name. All three of those things are kind of a big deal to get a grid for what's happening in the story. His occupation. He's a chief tax collector. It's the only time in the New Testament that title is ever used of anybody. You see tax collectors a lot, but you don't see chief tax collectors except for this story. So this guy is not an IRS agent. This guy is the department head over the entire agency. He's not just a tax collector. He has other tax collectors that work for him. He's the chief tax collector. Now again, if you grew up in church, you know a little bit about tax collectors. Kind of what we were told, or at least what I was told growing up, is tax collectors are the bad guys. They're the bad guys because they stole too much money when they were getting taxes from the people. They took a personal cut to become wealthy themselves. But here's the reality. That's like not even close to really truly what's going on and how jacked up these guys were. Tax collectors were the most hated, despised people in their day because they were more than just thieves that got rich. At the core of what they were doing, they were traitors. Here's what I mean. Israel was an occupied nation occupied by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at this point was building buildings left and right, creating massive cities, having incredible influence. The, the, the nation of Rome, the entire empire, was waging war across the, almost the entire known world at the time. And so that required a lot of money to fund their war and to fund all the battles that they were fighting. So what the Romans did is they had this brilliant idea. Let's get the Jewish people whom we are oppressing. Let's get the Jewish people. Let's find a couple people that just want to make a quick buck. And let's have them become tax collectors that help raise taxes for the Roman Empire so that we can continue uh, raiding and, and waging war and over, uh, overcoming all these other nations just like we did with Israel. So these people, these tax collectors, were making money, getting rich off of basically fleecing their own people. They were getting money off of uh, rejecting and betraying their own people and taking the worst enemy that you had and funding them. Hated, hated guys. Maybe a more modern equivalent of a tax collector is like a, a Jewish man or woman in the 1930s and 40s during World War II raising money and stealing money from other Jewish people in New York City to send that to the Third Reich so that Germany could continue their oppression of the Jews. Like, you can imagine how hated this person was. Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector, meaning he was the guy that oversaw all the other guys, probably the hated, most hated guy in the city. Here's the second thing Luke says. He, he, he tells us that he's rich. So he's not just this tax collector that's barely getting by. This dude, when he, rolls into when he rolls into town, there's swagger. He has cash. He's got coin in his pocket. He's making money because of his, his uh, traitorous doings. And then finally, Luke tells us his name. It's not always that we have names thrown out in the Bible uh, when there's a character involved, but Luke says this man's name was Zacchaeus. Now, we don't really get this in our culture today, but that name matters. Like, actually, in the first century, your essence as a human, kind of your identity as a person, was wrapped up in your name. You would actually get a name to kind of set you on a trajectory of who they wanted you to be, and his name was Zacchaeus. What did it mean? Well, if you're a Jewish person, you would know that his name meant the righteous one. So here's the righteous one who grew up to not be righteous, in fact, he grew up to be the opposite of that, and here he is, the righteous one, that when he rolls into town, he's the most hated guy in the, the entire city of Jericho, and you gotta just imagine the jokes that would have been said when he showed up. 
Oh, there's the righteous one. Oh, there's the righteous traitor that's making money off of us. Oh, there's the righteous traitor that's oppressing our people with our money, and he's getting rich doing it. It'd be like a prostitute with the name of purity. Like, there would be jokes, there would be comments, there would be negative things that would have been said. This is who Zacchaeus is. Now, look at what he does, verse 3. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. We don't know why. We don't know if he was curious about Jesus. Maybe there was a lot of fame and, and notoriety around Jesus, so maybe he just wanted to get a glimpse of him. We don't know if maybe he'd heard some of the rumors that Jesus actually loved tax collectors. We don't know. All we know is that he wanted to see Jesus. Let me be clear. He didn't want to interact with Jesus. He didn't want to have a conversation with Jesus. He just wanted to get a glimpse of who this man was and why there was such a fuss about him. So he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for Jesus was about to pass that way. Now, here's what I thought growing up. I thought that because Zacchaeus was so small and the crowd was there, he couldn't get a glimpse of Jesus, so he climbed a tree to get a better view But actually, most commentators throughout church history, they've not said that. Most commentators throughout church history have said that this phrase, small of stature, is not just saying, here's a really short guy. They're saying he's small of stature, as in his respect in the community was really small. So yeah, he probably was short, so it's a play on words, but he's also a guy that's not respected at all. And what was happening here, you gotta get this, is the crowd, as Zacchaeus is wanting to just get a glimpse of who Jesus is, this potential prophet or Messiah or whoever he is, he just wants to get a glimpse of who he is, and the crowd is keeping him back. The crowd is not letting him get a glimpse of Jesus, and they're forcing him away so that he's actually forced to go climb a tree so that he can get a glimpse of Jesus. The crowd was keeping him away. What right does a man like Zacchaeus, the righteous one, have to get close to Jesus? So that's Zacchaeus. You've met him. Now let me introduce you to the other character in the story, Jesus. So look at this, verse five. And when Jesus came to the place, I love this, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Verse seven, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. And here's what the crowd said. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. What's happening in the story? Well, you've met Zacchaeus, but then Jesus shows up. And here's what's crazy. We have no inclination in the story that Jesus was gonna interact with anybody else as he was passing through Jericho. He's just passing through. But what happens is Jesus, he, he sees this man in a tree, and Jesus, who is God, knows this man, he knows his story, he knows what's going on, and he says, hey, Zacchaeus, why don't you come down? I'm coming over today. He doesn't like say, hey, could I come over? He just says, I'm coming to your house today, right? Uh, if you have kids in the room, then you know what this feels like. When other kids that you don't even know who they are, they're like, I'm coming over today, Oh, yeah? I don't even know your family. I don't know what's, you know, but apparently you're coming to my house. That's what Jesus does with Zacchaeus. Hey, your house, I'm coming today. You don't get any say in this. And the crowd freaks out. The crowd starts to grumble. Why are they grumbling? What's the big deal here? Well, again, culturally, we don't understand the, the, the absolute 
incredible, ridiculous grace that Jesus is showing this man in this moment for him to say, I'm coming over to your house. We don't really see the weight of what's going on, but here's really what's taking place. Dr. Tom Constable, uh, a professor, he said this. He said, staying in a person's home amounted to sharing in his sins. Guys, this is scandalous in the first century. Jesus, to go to this tax collector, the most hated man in Jewish community, what Jesus is doing is saying, hey, you, Zacchaeus, this hated guy, the unrighteous one, I actually want to come, and I want to be close to you. I want to know you. I I don't want to just love you. I want to be your friend, and I want to share life with you. This is what Jesus is doing. Guys, let me just say this, that the the story of the whole Bible is not a story of a group of people that are cleaning up their life and turning over new leaves and trying really hard to, to get rid of all the addiction that they have so that they can come to Jesus with some semblance of good and say, okay, will you love me and will you accept me? And then only to have God say, yeah, I'll put up with you or if you're really great, I'll love you. No, the story of the Bible is so different. The story is of Jesus doing things just like this constantly where he finds the worst of the worst of the worst and those are the very ones that he chooses to draw close to and to say, I'm coming over to your house. I wanna be with you. I wanna know you. I wanna be, uh, I want my life to be wrapped up inside of your life. This is what Jesus does. In fact, look at verse 10. Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's interesting in this story and in most stories in the gospel, the ones that refer to other people as sinners, it's not God, it's actually the religious people of the day. The religious people of the day are referring to others as sinners. How does God refer to people? The lost ones. Words matter a whole lot. And God is not referring to people over and over in these stories in the gospel as the sinners. He's referring to them as the lost ones. Now, what does that do to your paradigm of how you think of God? Because God is not saying, yeah, you're broken and you're sinful, and maybe, just maybe, I can learn to put up with you. God is saying, no, you are the lost ones. Um, There's only one thing more terrifying than being lost, and I don't mean spiritually. I mean, like, physically. Have you ever been lost somewhere? Maybe even as a kid where like mom and dad left you. Maybe this never happened in your family, but I came, I came from a big family. There are 10 of us. I got left all the time, right? And I remember freak out moments and like, you know, Dillard's where I'm like, ah, I'm gonna live in Dillard's for the rest of my life. Uh, where, you know, and my mom and dad had 10 kids. They're like, they didn't know I was gone, right? They didn't miss me. They had plenty of other mouths to feed. So it was a long few days in Dillard's. I'm just kidding. It's only, only a few hours, then they came back. But there's only one thing more terrifying than being lost, and that's being a parent when you lose a child. You ever lost a child somewhere? My wife and I, we go to the state fair every year. I don't know why. Every year, I'm like, we, this was dumb. Why did we do this? But we go every year. We go to the state fair. The food's not even that great. Nothing's great there, but we go, and, and we, we love it. We have a lot of fun. But here's what's so crazy. I remember one time being at the state fair and my wife had had a conversation with me. She's like, please keep your eye out on Evie, our five-year-old. She's crazy. We don't know where she's gonna go. Just hold on to her. And and, and I remember the the moment where we're looking around and it's like, where's Evie? Oh man, where's Evie? 
Where, where's Evie? And, and the panic that ensues, and then this really sinful thing comes out in me where I start to blame my wife. Like, you were supposed to watch her. It was your responsibility as the mom. Like, why'd you lose our daughter? And then, you know, she's blaming me, I'm blaming, it's just a train wreck, and we're in freak out mode. And in that moment, you're like, I will do whatever I need to do to get my daughter back. I'll do whatever I need to do. There's nothing I would not do in this moment. The, the taken movies and all, I'm not gonna draw a line. I will do whatever I've gotta do to get my kids back. You know, we ended up obviously finding her. She's not still at the state fair somewhere, um, if you're curious. W- what does that paradigm do to the way you think of God and you? The religious people of the day, oh, why, why, why he's going to stay at this man's house who is a sinner. Jesus The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Do you feel lost? Do you feel addicted? Do you feel like you couldn't clean yourself up if you tried? Do you ever have days where you wake up and you think to yourself, man, if people only knew the real me, if people saw what was going on down here, like if they knew the darkness and the level of of grossness in my soul, Definitely God could never love me and people wouldn't want anything to do with me. Guys, friends, those are the types of people that God loves to love. The story of the Bible is not God coming after the righteous. It's not God coming after the ones that have it all together. The story of the Bible from start to finish is God coming after the most vulnerable, the most broken, the most weak, the most addicted, the ones that can't change. Those are the ones that God loves. We are not gathered in this room because we are the ones that killed it this week at being moral. We're not the ones that gather this week to celebrate our goodness. We are only here because we were dead in our sin and God moved towards us and made us alive. This is the story of the Bible. Uh, You have guys like Abraham early on in the Bible, if you've ever heard of him. Uh, Before God met Abraham, he was a pagan moon worshiper that wanted nothing to do with God. And that's the one that God picked and said, yeah, you, I want you to be me. I'm, I'm going to be your God. I want you to be for me. I, I'm going to be wrapped up in your life, and I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. Moses. You've heard of Moses. Here's what's so crazy. He was a murderer that doubted God's power at almost every level of his life. Almost every level is marked by murder and doubting God's power, and yet God says, I'm going to use you to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt, and I'm going to call you friend. Think about King David, this man after God's own heart. But the backstory behind King David is he had dark moments where he slept with another woman. He had, he had tons and tons of wives, but this one girl he wanted, he, he, he ended up basically raping her, getting her pregnant, right? And then to cover up the fact that he slept with her and got her pregnant, he had one of his best friends who, were, who was uh, her husband. He, he orchestrated his murder to cover up his own sin. Broken, broken man. Think about Mary Magdalene. Before Mary met Jesus, or really before Jesus met Mary, Mary had seven demons living inside of her. Most commentators think that she was probably a prostitute, kind of you know, giving her body away for money just to make it. And that was the type of woman that Jesus drifted to and said, you, I wanna love you, and you're gonna be one of my early disciples, one of the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. 
Think about the, the woman who is caught in adultery. We don't even know this woman's name, and that's probably God's grace on her life for all of eternity. But this woman caught in the act of sleeping with a man she's not married to, and what God does is just incredible. What Jesus does is, is all these religious leaders throw her down at the feet of Jesus, and they have these stones, and they're ready to stone her for her sin. And Jesus says, what man among you doesn't have any sin? Whoever doesn't have any sin can be the first one to stone this woman to death. And all the men, as they realize their sin, they begin to walk away. Jesus, the only one who didn't have any sin, who could have picked up a stone and thrown it, what he did instead is he kneeled down and he said, woman, uh, where are your accusers? If they don't condemn you, I don't either. Go and sin no more. This is Jesus who, who finds guys like Paul who orchestrated the murder of one of the early leaders of the church who really was just a terrorizer of the church, wanted nothing to do with Jesus and that's the type of guy, that's the type of person that Jesus says, you, I want you to have your life wrapped up into mine and I'm gonna love you and I'm gonna draw close to you. We are the lost ones and Jesus is the one that's pursuing us in the deepest, darkest moments of our life. So today, with your porn addiction, with your anger, with your marriage that's just a train wreck, with your inability to overcome that addiction, with whatever it is that's going on that, that, that no one else knows or maybe people know but you feel like separates you from God, those are the only things that make you eligible for the grace and mercy and love of Jesus. It's not that you're whole, it's that you're broken. Now look at his response. Zacchaeus responds to the grace of Jesus. Look at verse six. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. I wonder how many people in our city would receive Jesus joyfully if they only knew that he really could love someone like them. Verse seven, or verse eight, look at verse eight. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, behold, Lord, look at this, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to his house, since also he is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. I want you to notice the disruptive power of grace for just a minute. The disruptive power of grace. The, 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 the gospel equation is not you obey and then Jesus has grace for you. It's that Jesus has incredible, scandalous grace for you and then that changes you. It disrupts your way of life and it makes you a different person. Don't get that order confused in your life or the lives of other people. What Jesus is doing with Zacchaeus is saying, hey, you have salvation not because you are doing these acts of giving away your money and, and serving the poor and restoring all the, all the money that you stole. That's not why you have salvation. I brought grace to you and it's disrupted your way of life. Zacchaeus was a man who treasured and loved money. That was his God he loved it so much, it led him to betray his own people. And yet this thing that he found his identity in that he loved more than anything else now becomes the thing that he says, hey, I'm giving all my money away to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody, if I've done any wrongdoing financially, I'm gonna repay it. I'm not just gonna pay it back. I'm gonna repay them fourfold. Their position will be better off than it was before. What happened to Zacchaeus? It's the disruptive power of grace. God could do this in you. God could do this in you. Some of you feel like, man, I, I, I'm, I'm stuck. 
I feel so far out there. I feel like he could never love me. No, it's the disruptive power of the grace of God that can come into your life and begin to loose things that are there and set you free in ways. God is not demanding that you change to receive his love. He wants to love you as you are, and that will bring change. Over time, sometimes it's very slow, but that will bring change. Let me close like this. I, I was struck when I read this story by just the, the scandal of what was happening. How could Jesus go to this man and forgive him just like that? It feels like he's almost just kind of sweeping his sin under the rug like it's no big deal. Like, oh, it's no big deal. I know your background. I know your story. No big deal. It doesn't concern me. Is that really what's happening? Is, is Jesus just like careless? No, look at chapter 19, verse 1, because I think we're going to look at kind of a, we're going to get teed off to what's really happening here. Chapter 19, verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Do you know where Jesus is headed? In a matter of days, Jesus is going to walk into the city of Jerusalem. And if you don't know, the city of Jerusalem is where Jesus is going to climb up upon a cross and he's going to suffer, bleed, and die for the sins of the world. In a matter of days, Jesus is passing through Jericho, and in a matter of days, he's going to die on a cross for sin. Jesus is not making light of what you've done. He's not sweeping it under the rug. Listen to this. His love and affection for you was so great that it drove him to the cross. He actually left heaven, put his crown to the side, stepped down to this earth, lived the life that you couldn't live. He went to a cross and he took shame and guilt, all the things that you've done, all the things that Zacchaeus had done, and he placed it on himself, and Jesus died in his place. And then he rose again so that all that God had done could be given freely to us. Zacchaeus could climb down his tree because Jesus was climbing up on his. Zacchaeus could be accepted by God because Jesus was going to be an outcast on the cross in our place. Zacchaeus could experience love and mercy because Jesus experienced the justice and wrath that we deserved. He has done everything for us. And today, he's literally offering himself to you. So if you're here, if you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, listen, can I just tell you, you don't need to do anything to earn or deserve the love of God today. All you need to do is to be completely overwhelmed at your own self. All you need to do is to realize that you're spiritually bankrupt. All you need to do is realize that you are addicted that you do have issues, that there are things going on that, out of, that are out of your control. There are things that you wish you would do that you don't, and there are things that you do that you wish you didn't. And when you get to that place where you're at the bottom of yourself, Jesus, in the middle of your darkness, he comes to you, and he's not just extending a hand, he's calling your name. Hey, come down from there. I wanna come into your house today. I wanna be your friend. I wanna know you. I wanna love you. That's happening for some of you in this room. God is calling your name today, saying, I want to know you, and I wanna be in your life, and I want you to be in my life. So if you're not a Christian today, the invitation is come. If you have questions, if you have doubts, we can work those out together. The invitation is Jesus is inviting you to come to himself. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me close like this. This crowd kept Zacchaeus away from Jesus. He was trying to get a glimpse and the crowd fought him back and wouldn't allow him to even see Jesus. What would it look like for us Christians to create a culture as a church 
where we're not keeping people back from Jesus with our lifestyles, we're not keeping back from Jesus with the way that we treat them, what would it look like, Christians, if we created a culture as a church where we bring Jesus to people? Where instead of making it hard and complicated and building barriers, what would it look like if we brought Jesus to people? Can I tell you, that is the only reason why God gave us this building. He does not care especially about buildings and contracts and structures and all of that. This is a tool for the mission of God so that those who people in our city have written off as hopeless, people in our city that are written off that can't ever change, those people that are too far gone, those are the people that Jesus is saying, hey, Frontline, I've sent you into South OKC and Moore and Norman to live on mission and bring Jesus to the people. Do you want to do that with me? That's what we're going to do. So that changes the way you build relationships at work, changes the way you build relationships uh, with non-Christians that you go to school with, people in your family. No one is too far gone for the grace of God.